pray, Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for our act of worship, whether it's singing, whether it's giving, whether it's giving our time, our talents, or our treasures, Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do and say. Lord, I pray that this message comes from you, it's not from me, that you would give me the words that you want us to hear and learn and see and speak so that we can understand you more and know you more and love you more and love each other well. I pray for this time, Lord, because as we study this book, there are many in this world today who truly don't understand what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And so I pray, God, that we find understanding. I pray, Lord, that we would invite friends, families, co-workers, and loved ones to hear about this message. We give you this time. We pray it all in Jesus' name. So we're in Revelation. And you know that I have had this on my heart for a long time now. And to study this book has been a great privilege and a great honor. And I'm praying that you all would be blessed by this sermon series. It's going to be about 21 weeks long. So as I told Judy this week, I kind of made a joke. I said, I'm going to teach you all about the end times or last things. And then at the end of the sermon series, I'm going on vacation. So I'm going to scare you all to death and then leave you for two weeks. Good luck. It's going to be good. Some places we're going to have to go slow. Some places in this book we're going to have to go fast. But I've been studying this for some time, and I like to study. I like to study the scriptures. It's very important, and I likened this study to something of what I was growing up. I almost drowned at the age of ten in my pool, and this is how this study kind of reminded me of something. So let me tell you the story. I was swimming one day in my pool, and I had an A-frame ladder. And we put it over the edge, and the outside you could lift up so the kids couldn't get up there. Well, one day I told my mom, I'm going out swimming. No one else is with me. And so she's like, that's fine. And she unlocked the gate and came down to the A-ladder, and I went up into the ladder, and I went down into the pool. Being in Michigan, it was probably 68 degrees, so I was freezing. I decided, as a young man, I was going to do something crazy and daring. I, if you can picture this, I hope you can, was super skinny back then. And I was going to swim through all four rungs of the ladder. And I was going to hold my breath, and I was going to make it through each one of those rings. And they had to swim all the way around, all the way down to the bottom, and they would come out the bottom, you would get up, I held my breath for that long to get through each one of those rings. And so one day I do this and no one's there and I start at the top and I start to go through and I only got through two rings because I couldn't hold my breath long. And I was thinking, man, this is really horrible. I'm going to make it. I came up gasping for breath. And so I took a deep breath and I went through three rings of four and thought, man, I'm going to do this. And then I got to the fourth ring and my bathing suit got stuck. I'm all the way down at the bottom stuck on a ladder underneath the water about four rings down 
storm, what do I do? And I'm stuck, and so I start to frantic, and I start to panic, and I think, well, maybe I can lift the, 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 the ladder up. I'm strong enough to do that, maybe. Couldn't do that. And so then I hear something tell me, started backing up, and I went through backwards through it, and I got out, and I came up to the top of the water, and I started breathing, and I left onto the edge of the pool, and I was breathing, and I was just like, this is the wonderful breath, and I couldn't breathe any, and I was just like, that's what this spell is like for me, because it comes to the point of holding my breath. of this study for us. Take that long, deep, precious breath, realizing that God is in control. He's the one who's teaching. He's the one who's showing you Himself. He's revealing Himself to us. And that's got to be like you taking a breath yourself into that mindset, the breathing for this sermon, the breathing for this study, the breathing that you do on your own at home when you look at the book of Revelation needs to be that idea of you've almost lost your breath and the reality is your breath is God's grace. Does that make sense? God's precious, wonderful grace is what's given to all of us. You need to come to a point in your life
as well that I give them grace. That I care for them so much that I want them to know me so much that I'm that last attempt at breath. And that's my grace for them. I hope that picture makes sense to you. Take in his grace. Breathe it like the deep air that he provided. Matthew Krause puts it this way in his book about God's grace. The foundational pursuit, the bottom line of gospel ministry is believing the grace of the gospel. We need grace like we need oxygen. Grace is just as essential in surviving and thriving in life as a Christian. That's what we need. That's what I hope you get out of this. Grace. God's never-ending love, hope, faith, grace. Without further ado, I want to get into this book called Revelation with you. I want you guys to see what God has revealed to us. So before I get into it, though, I'm going to do something important. Because this is the introduction. And as I'm introducing you to the book, I want you to understand, it was written by John. He tells us John writes this to us. John, the same guy who wrote the gospel. John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd letter to the church. John writes this to us. He's on a remote island, and he's writing this to us to show us who God is. And so I need to define some terms for you, because if you don't define terms in the beginning, we miss each other. People in Christendom say things... And they don't mean the same thing that they say. And this is where misunderstanding comes in. This is where Christians will actually break off fellowship with each other, and they will go to a set church that only gives them what they want the definition to be. And so I've given you a handout, two of them actually, and we're going to go through those handouts so you understand the terms. Because I put these definitions in your handout, along with what I think you need to understand. I couldn't put all this information on a slide. So here's the thing. You might not agree with this information that I give you. I'm okay with that. I'm not going to debate with you on these things. I love you, and I can agree to disagree with you. What I understand and what I have studied from seminary to now is what I'm giving you information on. And I might be, are you ready for this? Your pastor's going to say something very dramatic. I might be wrong. How many people do you know are willing to say that? Raise your hands if you're willing to say, I might be wrong. A lot of you. That's wonderful. Because in reality, most of us don't think we're wrong. And we'll die on a hill when we think we're right. And we don't have enough information. And we'll argue positions, and we do it so well. I call it social media strong. We'll get on social media, and we'll start typing away about how we know we're right, and you're wrong. And you voted for the wrong guy, and here's why you're totally wrong. And here's what this guy did, and here's all the wonderful... And we get into these arguments about stupid things. And I'm here to tell you, I've studied enough people. Now, I might be wrong. And I'm willing to hear your position. 
understanding of persuasive arguments and you have enough understanding and things that you can bring to me and show me, I'm good with that. We can talk and discuss these things. But I'm telling you right now, I have studied so much of this that I I don't want to be arrogant about it. But I have a tendency here, and my wife likes to say this, don't be seminary snobs. Don't be a seminary snob. I'm trying not to be, but I take much of this information from people I learn from in seminary. I learn from people, and, and, and I'm telling you right now, Dr. Norman Geisler. Does anyone know who Dr. Norman Geisler is? Nobody. Does anyone know who Dr. Charles Lyrie is? Okay, a couple people. So a lot of this information comes from those guys who are a lot smarter than I am. But much of this information comes from them, and much of it comes from my studies at Moody Theological Seminary. And so I'm giving you this information because I think it's important for us to define terms. So here we go. Because what does God want us to know about Him? That's really the important part of this. That's why this book is, and my goal is to study Revelation. It's Him revealing us, Himself to us. So let me define some terms for you. Does anyone know what this lies reading definition is? What's this definition? Eschatology. It's a fancy word. Does anyone know what ology means? Study of. So this is the study of last things. Last things. Eschatology is the study of last things. For many Christians, eschatology teaches us, and the Bible teaches us, about the future and its clear and detailed teachings concerning the future. So that you and I are able to know with certainty what the future holds. What the future holds for us and what the future holds for the world. And yes, I hope you heard this. I did say Revelation is clear and detailed. It's a clear, detailed teaching of who God is. Because God takes chaos and puts it into order. It's a clear understanding, because you've heard before, no one talks about Revelation because it's it's so muddied, it's so unclear, it's so unpredictable, and no one knows exactly what's going to happen. Wrong. I'm here to tell you they're wrong. It is clear. God tells you exactly what He wants you to know, and God doesn't tell you exactly what He doesn't want you to know. So here's a little revelation for you. When we get to heaven, we're going to learn something new about God. Just so you're aware, He takes chaos and turns it into order. Man, humankind, does the very opposite. They take order and they throw it into chaos. In fact, they take so much order and throw it into chaos that they'll have revivals. And they'll tell you that God is here and they're separating humans and demons and it's great. And it's all a show. It's all a show. How many of you have heard about the current revivals that are going on in the United States? It's a big, huge trend on TikTok. How many of you are hearing this now? Please, for all that is holy, look to God for understanding. Don't look to man. Please stop looking to man. 
man's going to tell you something and they're going to try and get you excited and they're going to use emotion and they're going to get, ooh, and they actually kill your heart's passion. Do you know that this is how that passion for God is lost Christians hold to, and I say that as lovingly as I can, Christians hold to an amillennial or a view of last things where there is no thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. After the second coming, at the end of this age, the church age, there's going to be a general resurrection and a general judgment of all people. So amillennialists believe there's no 1,000-year reign, ah, meaning without, a thousand-year literal reign of Christ on earth. And if you want to look at your flyer, I didn't put them on there. <laughs> I'm fine. I didn't put them on there. Uh, I struggle with amillennialists. I struggle with them. There's a lot of them out there. A lot of traditions believe that there's not going to be a literal thousand-year reign. They do say there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth for us. That's it, really. And when Christ comes back a second time, it's going to end. All of it. We're done. So when Christ comes back a second time, we're done. So, amillennialists interpret Scripture and key passages and doctrines in a way that supports their system of thinking. Hear me for this. They do this so it supports their thinking of Scripture, their understanding. Our millennialists use what's called eisegesis, the fancy term of reading into the Scriptures what you want it to say. Exegesis and understanding hermeneutics is understanding exactly what the writer was saying and trying to apply that to yourself today. Putting yourself in the shoes of the people back then is where we get a fancy term called hermeneutics. Understanding why it was written, when it was written, who it was written by, and how it applies to us today is hermeneutics. But that's called exegesis. What these guys do is they use eisegesis. Oh, the scripture says this, so I'm going to say this. And I'm going to read into it that meaning. They don't take the context into understanding. Does that make sense? So 
For example, I'll give you a way that they do this. The land promises of Abraham in the Old Testament have never been fully fulfilled by the nation of Israel. Never. Not once. God promises in Genesis Abraham the land, and he tells him categorically from where to where, to what sea to what sea. He says, you're going to own all of this land. They've never done it. Not once have they done it. And, and Charles Riley, Dr. Riley says this, Amarillos say that we need not expect a future fulfillment, fulfillment of this because, one, the promises were conditional and the conditions were never met. Two, the land promise was fulfilled in the time of Joshua. And they actually give you verses for that. No, it wasn't. Wasn't even close. Then they say, well, well, it was fulfilled during David's time. And they'll give you a verse for that, 2 Samuel 8, 3. No, it wasn't. Not even close. Well, then they'll say, no, no, no. Well, it was fulfilled during King Solomon's time. In fact, during his reign in 1 Kings 4, 21. No, it wasn't. Not even close. And then they'll say this. Well, it's now being fulfilled by the church today. No, it's not. It's a promise to the nation of Israel, not to the church. And so there's actual Christians out there. I won't name names to keep the guilty from being exposed. But they actually think the church replaces Israel. No, it doesn't. Stop doing that. The church does not replace the nation of Israel. Oh, well, they, re they rejected Jesus. So we now are the church. We are the nation of Israel. No, we're not. We're the Gentiles. The nation of Israel, God has a promise for them, and they're going to fulfill that promise because God promised it to them. Stop reading into the Scripture stuff that's not there. But they don't want to do that because it doesn't fit their narrative. And so they believe these things. Here's the problem. If any of these options are correct, then all the other options are wrong. So if you were to tell me that Abraham fulfilled it, well, then David couldn't have, and neither could have Solomon. If David did it, then Abraham couldn't have, and neither could Solomon. If Solomon did it, then David couldn't have, and neither could have Abraham. Stop talking doublespeak. This is where we need theologians, people who study God and study the Scriptures, to start actually calling people out for their lies, just to fit their narratives. Thank you. You got an amen? We don't have that anymore today. I mean, even back in the early church, Peter and Paul got into an argument. They were nose to nose, it says. Because one was teaching something, and the other one was like, that's not what the Scripture says. Peter was actually trying to do something that the Scripture wasn't saying. And Paul's telling him, you can't do that. We need that today. You want to know why you have so many biblical, illiterate people in America today? It's because you don't have pastors willing to call out other pastors and other teachers for telling you lies. Because you know what? We're all being fooled. We're all just playing a game. Let it be simple. Let it prove anything wrong. In fact, every time you show up at church, let's, you know what? This is right here. See what this belt right here? Just another belt. Congratulations. You put in everything God called you to do. You do nothing wrong. God loves you. God cares about you. God wants you to have all the things that you want. In fact, let me give you some scripture to show you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Congratulations. 
will actually create this Christian television network, and they will show you how great Jesus is. And look at the world becoming more Christ-like. You're living in the millennium. In fact, they'll actually say this, social conditions in the world today are only getting better. Because we have enormous amounts of money and they're giving to and for and by Christians. Don't you see this? The world is so much better off now. There's so much less poor people, so much less hungry people than there was before Christ. And we're taking care of the world as Christians. Wow, you guys are all looking at me like I'm crazy. This is the post-millennial view of the world. They believe they're right. So if you look at your handout I gave you, you can see pre-trip, mid-trip, and post-trip, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but I've got pre-millennialism versus post-millennialism and the differences between the two. And so I've given that to you so you can see their arguments and how they differ. But this view holds that the second coming of Christ is going to occur prior to the thousand-year reign and we're going to see the establishment of Christ's kingdom on the earth for a literal thousand years. One thousand years literal Christ is going to reign. It's also understood that there's going to be several occasions when resurrections and judgments are going to take place. Eternity is going to begin after the thousand year reign is concluded. Within premillennialism, there are those who hold differing views of the time of the rapture, which we're going to get to next. summarize this for you. We, myself and others included, believe in a premillennialism, the second coming of Christ, and the idea of a thousand years literal reign on earth. Here's the description of that I've written. Its actual location is going to be this earth, here, our earth. Not some new heaven and new earth, it's going to be here. And its government is going to be theocratic, meaning that it's going to be the personal presence of Jesus Christ reigning as king. He's going to be here for a thousand years, reigning on the throne as king, king of kings, lord of lords. Now, as a dispensationalist and a premillennialist, meaning that I believe that God's work in his people in Israel and us Gentiles and the nation of Israel are distinct people versus people who are actually covenant theologians. Okay? So dispensationalists, the way that I understand Scripture, is that the Gentiles and the nation of Israel are two separate groups. Does that make sense? Covenant theologians think that the nation of Israel is gone and they're no more and we, the church, now replace them. And so all the promises that God gave to the nation of Israel now apply to the church today. I think that's wrong. I can give you some scripture in understanding it, but I think it's wrong. We VPers, as I like to call us, consistently just 
distinguish the church from its members because the church does not fulfill the yet unfulfilled promises made to Israel. We don't do that. That's not our job. But there must be a time when they, Israel, will be fulfilled, and that time is during the millennial reign. Does that make sense? Nod your head or say amen. Okay. These are the first three terms that I need to define so you understand where we're coming from and their understanding of the Bible and what these people think. Now the fun ones. The last three that I'm going to define today so that we can just get them out there clearly. This is going to be fun. Okay. Are you ready? Some of you are going to get up and walk out because you're going to be mad. This is traditionally what your view is by many theologians. Post-tribulational rapture view. Post-tribulationism teaches that the rapture and the second coming are facets of a single event. And they're going to occur at the end of the tribulation. If you look at your handout, look at post-tribbers, you're going to see that they actually believe the second coming of Christ, the tribulation, the rapture of the church all happens at one time. They're not distinct. They're the same event. church on earth during the tribulation is going to experience the events of that period. According to post-trib view, the church on earth is going to experience during the tribulation all that happens. And you're going to see the book of Revelation. I'm going to let you see that here in a minute. positions in Christendom, post-trib versus pre-trib. There is one that's called pre-millennial or or mid-trib or pre-rap view. I'll get to that one in a minute. But as I gave you this handout, I want you to look at post-tribulation rapture view. It says, number one, the rapture occurs after the tribulation. See that? Number two, the church experiences Revelation 3.10 at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that's coming on the whole world. And I'll explain their position in a minute how they actually get to that. Remember, eisegesis versus exegesis. Number three, the day of the Lord begins at the close of the tribulation. Number four, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3 occurs near the end of the tribulation. That says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They think that happens at the end of the tribulation. Number five, 144,000 Jews are redeemed at the conclusion of the tribulation. Number six, the rapture and the second coming are a single event. I've said that already. Number seven, no such judgment of the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ. I want you to remember this. Remember this. They actually think there's no such judgment of the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ. Number eight, remember this one as well. The living Gentiles are judged after the millennium. Number nine, parents of the millennial population come from the 144,000 Jews. And then number 10, believers of the church age are judged after the second coming or the conclusion of the millennium. I 
gave you that, because if I just said that to you, how many have followed along what I said? None of you. So I gave it to you to understand and to look at and to research. Because there's the fundamental positions and what they believe, and there's some in this camp that believe differently, but this is what traditionally the pre- or post-tribillennialist rapture view people believe. Okay? Now, let me give you the pre-trib rapture view. Pre-tribulation rapture teaches that the rapture of the church, both death and living saints, is going to occur before the seven-year tribulation period. That's before the end or the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. It's necessary to say before the seven-year tribulation period because some hold to a mid-tribulation rapture view, and they state that the rapture is pre-tribulation. They'll actually say, well, no, we're pre-tribbers too. When they're really in the middle of the tribulation, they just say pre-wrath of God. Because they understand the tribulation to occur only for the last three and a half years of the seven-year period. Okay? So I'm going to get into more of this later, but for now, understand that the rapture of the church, both living and dead saints, is going to occur before the seven-year tribulation period. Now, to compare the two, I've given this to you in a handout. Pre-tribulation rapture view says the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation. I can help you with that. You can see where I understand the church to be. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Does that make sense? Okay. Then I'm comparing basically the pre-trib and the post-trib position. Because most Christians will either fall into those two camps. Traditionally. So, the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation. Number two, the church experiences Revelation 3.10 before the tribulation. Let me explain this verse this way. Because I'm not going to geek out on you guys here tonight. I'm not going to do it. I wanted to. I really did. I wanted to put the Greek up there and be like, and so in Greek, this is what this means. But I wasn't going to do that because that's boring. How many of you want to go to classes next week? Yeah, okay, some of you do. But let me explain this. Pre-tribulation teaches, or I'm sorry, post-tribulationists unteach or teach this unclearly, the meaning of the promise in Revelation 3.10. The reason I say that is because this. Number one, some seem to think or say that it means protection. Post-tribbers actually think it's protection for some believers who escape the martyrdom throughout the tribulation. And then the rapture happens at the end. Okay? So, some seem to say that it means protection from the last crisis, which includes Armageddon. And, and there's a lull of peace and safety that supposedly precedes it by the rapture just before the last crisis. And then there's some who say that the church, it, it means the church is going to live through the Armageddon and be guarded during that time and emerged unscathed. All believers are going to be unscathed by God's wrath. And the rapture and the second coming. One thing is clear to post-tribulationalists is that it means, it cannot mean deliverance before the tribulation. That's one thing that they're going to die on a hill for. Post-tribbers would say it doesn't happen before the tribulation, and they tell you that it happens after the tribulation. They come in with it. Let me be clear with you guys. 
as all of our politicians like to say. I think this is plain. I think this is simple. If I were to say, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. Not any persecution, but the coming time that's going to affect the whole earth. The only way to escape worldwide trouble is to not be on the earth, correct? The only way to escape the time and the events that take place is not to be in the place where time picks on. The only place to meet these requirements is in heaven. There's no other place. Can't be anywhere else. So let me give you an illustration. As a teacher, I have to give out exams, right? Y'all had to give exams, didn't you? You had to give exams. Now let's say I said this to the class. I'm going to give an exam on such and such a day at the regular class time. Then suppose I say this. I want to make a promise to the students whose grades are A's for this semester. You've averaged an A. This is the promise I'm going to give to you. You ready? I will keep you from the exam. If I said nothing more, I would expect that the A students would be puzzled over this promise. They'd be like, what are you talking about? You have to give this exam. Does it mean that we have to take the exam or not take the exam? I'm not quite sure. Well, just to be safe, I would expect that they would show up for the appointed time because they would not have understood clearly what I'd said, correct? Now, I could keep my promise to the A students. Listen, I could pass out the exam to everybody and give the A students all the answers, right? They would be taking the exam, yet they would be kept from the exam because they got all the answers. But they're going through the exam. Just taking my answers and letting them go down. So they're going through it, and they could be. That's post tribulation protection while doing it. So you got to go to the exam, but you get all the answers. But if I'm giving the exam next week and I want to make a promise to tell all the A students this, and I say to them, I'm going to keep you from the hour of the exam. Seriously doubting that the A students in that class would be A students who wouldn't misunderstand what I was doing. I'd be very hard pressed if I tell them, I'm keeping you from the hour of the exam. I'd be hard pressed to have some students show up going, I thought you said you were keeping me from, but I didn't know, and so I'm confused. Jesus, what are you doing? Well, first off, go serve him. As I told you before, I'm keeping you from the hour of the exam. That would be understood clearly. They wouldn't have to take the test. Right? If I said, no, I'm keeping you from the exam, they might be like, mm, what does that mean? But if I said, I'm going to keep you from the hour of the exam, which they've been coming all semester long, at the exact same time, they know when we do this test, they don't have to take it because I'm keeping them from the hour. So they're not going to show up. Just so you're aware, that's pre-tribulationalism. That's the promise of Revelation 3.10. And that's the promise that comes from the risen Savior himself. He 
least deliverer from the wrath to come. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says this, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Mick Trivers trying to use this as well, but they miss so much more, and I'll get into that in a minute. That's number three on your list. Number four. All right, I mean, that's number two. Number, number three, the day of the Lord begins with the tribulation. Number four, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 occurs at the beginning of the tribulation. So, number five, this is where we differ. 144,000 redeemed Jews start at the tribulation. It's the start of the tribulation, not at the end of it. Number six, the rapture and the second coming events are separated by seven years. Number seven, the living Israelites are judged at the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's why I wanted you to remember what post-trips think. Those pre-tribbers, there is no such judgment for them. Number eight, the living Gentiles are judged at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Number nine, parents of the millennial population come from survivors of judgment of on living Jews and Gentiles. And number ten, believers of the church age are judged in heaven between the rapture and the second coming. These are the two major differences in pre-trib and post-trib rapture views in Christendom today. For the rapture view of Jesus Christ's second coming, you've also had a handout to explain some of the very simple things with a picture. Hopefully that understands for you. Now let me get into the mid-tribbers. Please don't walk out. Because I'm going to try and go fast through this. Mid-trib rapture believes that the rapture of the church occurs at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. That's three and a half years in. In this view, only half of Daniel's 70th week is the tribulation. That's why they're called mid-tribulation. Sometimes they're considered pre-tribulational because they teach it happens before the rapture occurs, but it only happens three and a half years in. They have two major passages that they believe fit their understanding. One guy wrote a book in 1991. We were a required reading for us in seminary. Very interesting book. But I struggled with it a lot. Our professors and our doctors of seminary people were like, again, they use eisegesis. Dr. Ryrie puts it this way. Mid-tribulation, those find support in their views Olivet Discourse. The argument goes like this. Matthew 24, verse 27 indicates the rapture because of the word parousia in Greek. And it's used here as the same rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. They also say in Matthew 24.31 and 2 Thessalonians 2.1 uses the word from the same root word there. To me, the argument seems to be far supporting more of a post-tribulational chronology, not a mid-trib, since these comparisons seem to conclude that the rapture and the second coming are the same event, not different. So as Dr. Ryrie says, mid-tribulations avoid this conclusion by arguing that the rapture in the Olivet Discourse is preceded by signs that should alert believers to the nearness of the rapture. These signs include the spread of the gospel, 
the rise of beasts, and the general persecution of the church. Because these signs are going to appear in the first half of the seven years, the rapture must occur at the midpoint. But frankly, that's not a good argument. It's actually a better argument for post-tribulationalism, not mid. Because what about some of the uses of the same words for rapture in the second coming? Does this indicate that they're at the same event? No. They're not the same event. This, of course, is an argument used to support post-tribulationalism. And it doesn't. So one would expect to find similar vocabulary to describe the events that have similarities. But similarities do not make sameness. Like I've said before, because the Bible describes something, it's not a prescription. Description is not prescription. Let me say that so you get this. Just because something is being described does not mean that's how you are supposed to do it. Let me give you an example. Just because David had hundreds of concubines doesn't mean many of them are true concubines. I don't care what Andrew Tate says. I don't care that he's got 40, 48 billion views saying, well, the Bible says you're allowed to have multiple women. No, it doesn't. It's just describing to you what David had. It's also what Solomon had. It doesn't mean you men can have a thousand wives. If you study the book of Judges, it doesn't mean you can go out and be like Gideon and have all these children with all these different women. Not okay. It's just describing to you what happened in those days. It's not prescription. Here's another issue with mid-tribulationalists' argument. They say the seventh trumpet of Revelation 10-7 corresponds to the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15. If this is true, then the rapture described in 1 Corinthians would occur at the midpoint of the tribulation like the seventh trumpet sounds. This is a very simplistic argument that argues that all blowing of trumpets must indicate the same kind of event. I'm going to tell you right now, that ain't true. It ain't true. In some Jewish apostolic literature, trumpets signaled a variety of great eschatological events, including judgments, the gathering of the elect, and resurrections. Just because the seventh trumpet is a trumpet of judgment does not mean that in Revelation it corresponds to the Corinthians' words. They're not one for one. It's a way for the people to understand the signal. Again, description, not prescription. So they argue that, well, they must be one for one connected. They're not. They're not. The seventh trumpet is a trumpet judgment. The trumpet judgment in Corinthians is one of resurrection and deliverance. Do you see the difference? One is judgment, one is resurrection and deliverance. The one in Revelation is judgment, the one in Corinthians is deliverance and resurrection. Not the same thing. So, you've all heard these positions. Now you're all bored and upset. Let's look at why we study this book and listen. And I'm going to give you seven reasons why we study this book. Because someone came up to me and said, Pastor, why are you doing Revelation? Too many people get hung up on Revelation and the end times. No one really wants to read that and study that book. Literally, that's what they said to me. I said, because John is going to tell us why we are doing this, why we study this book. So here it is. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. 
revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what's written in it, for the time is near. Did you see it? Why are we studying this book? Here's the seven reasons why we're studying this book. Number one, if you hear and keep what's written in it, you're blessed. Congratulations. Number one, you're blessed. You're blessed with this experience today. Wow. You're welcome. By the way, I'm blessed with just reading it aloud, according to John, according to God. We're all blessed by studying this book. Number two, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Studying this book helps us become joyful. studying his books. This helps us to know him. This gives us facts about life after death. After death. That's why we're studying this. Number five, studying this book will give us facts about the end of history. It gives us proof of the reliability of scripture and we can share that with others so they too can know the truth. That's another reason why we're studying this. Number six, James 4, 7, and 8 says this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Number six, we need to submit to God. We need to resist the devil. We need to draw near to him because he draws near to us. It helps us to not be double-minded in our understanding that we won't chase after the Lord. And lastly, going to have fun. How many of you had to go on a road trip with your dad? How many of you had your father say to you, you're going to have fun? I don't want to go look at a giant ball of rubber bands. This is not fun, dad. Oh, you're going to have fun because I'm paying for it and you're going and I don't want to hear you complaining in the back seat. I'm sitting on the hump for three hours. 
my brothers were mean. And my dad would get mad, and I loved him to death, but he would yell, don't make me stop this car and get out. I'll turn this car around. How many of you heard that one? I used to go, please turn this car around if there is a God. That was me. And my dad would get mad, and he'd be driving, and I don't know how he did it, but he would turn and he would hit. And me being in the, because we were always fighting, we were boys, we fought all the time, he would hit. And somehow, being stuck on the hump, I got hit the most. It was wonderful. And then he would say, shut up, you're going to have fun. So the reason why we're studying this book is because you're all going to have fun. And I'm going to turn around and face the screen and start complaining if I hit. Don't sit in the hump, we're in the middle. We're going to have fun together. And we're going to study God's word together. And we're going to know who God is together. And I got rid of all of the complaints and all of the confusion of mid-trip versus post-trip versus pre-trip. We're all now, no. And you can say we went to Sunday school, right? Just kidding. We're all going to fight. We're all going to have different traditions and understanding. I gave you a tradition. Let's do some fun together today. Let's pray. I wanted you to have the introduction. I wanted you to see some terms so you understand where I'm coming from at this point. Okay? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises. I thank you that we are going to have fun. I thank you that when we submit ourselves to you, we resist the devil. He actually runs from us because we can draw near to you and you will draw near to us. I thank you that when we study this book, it gives us facts. Not theories, not myths, not something crazy, but it gives us facts at the end of history. And it gives us proof, the reliability of Scripture. Lord, thank you that we can have good courage. That whether we're home with the body or away, and we're with you, we can have our aim in ministry. And so we definitely study in this book. Lord, I pray as all Scripture is read down by you, that we would read its words. Because as we're, we're going through and you're preparing for us the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, that we can find joy in the midst of the afflictions. And Lord, I pray that we who hear what's written in this book would be blessed. That we who read this book 